0: Well, let me just begin by going ahead and reading 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the first nine verses, verses 1 through 9. This is the word of God. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Jesus Christ and our brother Sosthenes. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those Now, you would never know it from those opening verses of 1 Corinthians that the church in Corinth was a mess. I mean, they are a problem church. Paul begins with a shockingly positive tone, given the many negative issues he's going to have to correct in this letter. And and he's not blowing smoke, he's not flattering them, he's not being manipulative. But he is already saying true things that will apply to some of the issues he's writing to correct, like apostolic authority, unity in Christ, spiritual gifts in the church, purity in Christ, and even the resurrection. In fact, in these first three verses, Paul is saying true things already that answer the question, how are we to live Christian lives in this pagan city? The church in Corinth, as I said, they're kind of a problem child. Paul writes letters to churches like a father who is instructing and correcting and encouraging his children. And among all of Paul's churches, the church in Corinth is the rebellious, strong-willed child, always needing attention, always needing a firm hand. And Paul writes this letter to move them to greater maturity. B.J. Walters, he's the pastor of Redeeming Grace Church, also a NETS Church. Some of you guys remember B.J. from the NETS uh, men's ministry meetings that we used to go to, the men's retreats. And B.J. calls these verses in 1 Corinthians a reset. It's a reset, like, like hit the reset button. Paul spent 18 months planting the church in Corinth. It's about four or five years later when he's writing this letter to reset the Corinthians and the church. You know, sometimes, you and I need a reset. Now that it's spring and the weather's changed, you may, you may be resetting your activities like I am. For more outdoors activities, you may, be, you may be resetting your schedule. Sometimes, it's a different kind of reset. Sometimes when you're grumpy and discontent and being more critical than you are thankful, you need to reset your attitude. Got a little response with that one. If you're not making time to read your Bible and pray on a regular basis, you need a, a devotional reset. It may be that your relationships aren't quite right. Maybe with your spouse, or your kids, or your coworkers, and you need a relational reset. Sometimes you need a soft reset. I guess that's just the kind of the touch-the-button one. It's just a minor change here or there, an adjustment. It could be that you need a hard reset. I think that's unplug, right? And then plug back in. Because you're way off track. And you're in, you're in need of major course correction. And I think in some way this morning, all of us could probably use a reset. A reset about how we think about ourselves, how we think about God, and how we think about living our lives. And I say that knowing that all of us are in different places this morning. Some of you are outside of Christ, but because you are here this morning, I'm hoping that you might be open to the things of Christ. Some of you are growing in Christ likeness, seeing the fruit of the Spirit in your life and joyfully serving Christ in this church for God's glory. Some of you are languishing in anger, in lust, in unforgiveness, with a general desire for the things of the world more than a desire for the things of God. Some of you are stuck in a spiritual mud season. You're not giving yourself to sin, but you're also not moving forward in faith. You're not bearing spiritual fruit. Wherever you are, I think this passage is for us. And if you say that you don't need a reset this morning, I think that the people in the church of Corinth would have probably said the exact same thing. So let's take a closer look at this passage and and try to benefit from this spiritual reset by God's grace. If you have your sermon outline, you can follow along. This is the sermon theme. The Apostle Paul reminds us who we are. The church sanctified by God's grace in Jesus Christ. So, with thanksgiving, we're to live in God's grace through which we have been sanctified, are being enriched, and will be made guiltless in the Lord Jesus Christ. Take a look first at those first three verses again. This is the salutation and greeting. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. Sosthenes, is he's not a co-author, but he is a, he is a respected member of the Corinthian church. He's with Paul in Ephesus. And Paul says, he's, he's here with me, your faithful brother, ministering alongside. He writes to the church of God, that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together, with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. And he greets them saying, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ himself called Paul to be an apostle, his apostle to the Gentiles, by the will of God. That's that's pretty powerful language. Those are pretty powerful credentials. This rightly establishes Paul's authority to shepherd this church in Corinth. Some of the Corinthians did not acknowledge Paul's status as a true apostle. They probably read this as some kind of a power play, right? Oh, Paul's acting like he's the boss of us. You're not the boss of us. The fact is that he is their spiritual boss, according to God and according to Jesus. And it would be good for the church in Corinth to devote themselves to the apostles' teaching. That's why Paul introduces himself with these credentials. But sometimes we stop there and we say, oh, this this is just the apostle asserting his credentials. I think there's a lot more here. What we often miss about this word apostle what we often miss about this word apostle is that it actually points away from Paul and to the one who sent him inherent in the word apostle is that you're not your own you represent somebody else it's not a it's not a puffed up kind of a title it's a humble kind of a title It's like saying, I'm a servant, which automatically places you below your master. Or like saying, I'm an ambassador, which inherently means you represent another authority, an authority that is not your own. While Paul has authority, it's not his authority. The office of an apostle is inherently humble. When this man says, I'm an apostle, he's saying, I've humbled myself. Paul's not in Corinth to make a name for himself. That's what everybody in Corinth did. He did not walk into town saying, Paul's here, everybody. He came into town in fear and weakness and much trembling. And he came into town knowing nothing except Christ and Christ crucified. Paul didn't seek the office of apostle. It was assigned to him. Paul is not butting into the Corinthians' business. He was commissioned to undertake this very task. Paul has been given apostolic authority because Paul has been given apostolic responsibility. That's how authority and responsibility always work. An apostle is the one who has seen the resurrected Christ. Is one who has been trained by Jesus himself to witness to Christ about his word. Not only with his word, but with his lifestyle. He's the humble student of the great teacher. The Corinthians need a reset. They need a reset on the wisdom and knowledge of God. And the humble apostle, now that doesn't mean he's not bold with the truth. He is. But this humble apostle is the one Jesus sent to reset this church. The word church in verse 2, it refers to this local church in Corinth. They know who they are. It's the church in Corinth. And Paul reminds them that they are the church of God. Hey, you are are God's people in the city of Corinth. That's who you are. And how did they become God's people? One, they have been sanctified in Christ Jesus. And two, they have been called to be saints in Christ Jesus. And in both those words, sanctified and saint, we should hear the word holy. Holy. Those terms, those words, are wrapped up in the word holy. The word sanctified means to be set apart. That is to be set apart from the world unto holiness. And when we hear the word sanctified, we usually think of our progressive sanctification. That's what we mostly talk about. That is that we are growing in holiness. We were justified by saving faith in Christ... Now we are being sanctified, growing in holiness in Christ, and one day we will be glorified in Christ, and our sanctification will be complete. But there is another use of the word sanctified. Here, Paul is not referring to our progressive sanctification. He is referring to our definitive sanctification. Our positional, if you will, sanctification that is in Christ. In this sense... In order to be justified, we must be sanctified. When we came to saving faith, God declared sinful us to be wholly His. Definitive sanctification attends our declared justification. Our definitive sanctification is a past action. It happened at the time of our justification but it has a continuing ongoing effect. It remains in place. So God sanctified us, He has set us apart, He has designated us to be holy in His sight. And so we are. When God looks at us, He sees, positionally, us holy in Christ. You might not have looked at yourself that way this week. The word saint refers to a person who is called to be holy. A saint is a sinner who has been set apart by God as holy, who is now becoming holy. A saint is becoming practically what he already is positionally. This is not an option. This is God's effectual call. Those whom God calls will be holy. So it's like when God gave Israel the promised land. Here's your land. It's yours. I give it to you. And then he told them to enter the land and take it and possess it. They already have it, but they must take it. You have been declared holy, but now you must live out a holy life. Paul's not saying that the Corinthians are morally perfect. Not any more than you or I are morally perfect. The problem is that They kind of thought they were. You don't want to think you kind of are, right? The fact is that Jesus is holy, and he makes his people holy. So holiness is what each saint is to strive for now, although imperfectly, until Christ returns and completes the holiness of his people. We're called to live out the gospel and what it means to be Christ's church. Saints must ever increasingly live like saints. We know that the Corinthians are prideful and they're self-promoting. But they are also so arrogant that Paul has to remind them that everyone, everywhere who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus are also legitimate saints and legitimate churches. You're not the only ones. God has people in other places. Not just Corinth. The gospel is advancing in other places, not just Corinth. I I think about autonomy, and I think that our Baptist polity upholds the independent autonomy of the local church with reference to the local churches, but not not with reference to Christ. Every gospel-believing church everywhere is under the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're 100% dependent on Him. So verses 1 and 2 are the salutation. Verse 3 is the greeting of the letter. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is, this is not just a passing pleasantry. This is not just a formality to get by. It is a gospel summary in the form of a blessing and a prayer. Paul blesses them in the grace and peace which is already theirs in Christ. And he prays that they will continue in the grace and peace which is already theirs. In Christ, And here's the divine wisdom and knowledge of the gospel. God the Father is the source of all grace and peace, and the Lord Jesus Christ is the means of that same grace and peace. Notice the order of the grace and peace when we read it. The peace that we have with God and with others is the result of God's grace. Both are gifts of God the Father, and both are dispensed by Christ the Son. The grace of God is, is expansive. Okay, it's a wide topic. But the first thing that always comes to mind is, is the saving grace of God. All who truly trust in the name of Jesus Christ have received the grace of God and the mercy of God. God is holy and cannot abide sin in His presence. We're sinners who cannot make ourselves holy, so we have a problem. Jesus is the only holy man who can make sinners holy and fit for God's presence. How does he do that? He took God's judgment on our sin and the punishment for our sin, which is death and hell, upon himself. He was the truly holy one who took our place on the cross. God accepted his holy sacrifice on our behalf. So it is by faith in him in Jesus' death and burial and resurrection, that God has declared sinful us to be holy His. We are holy in position and holy in purpose, not because of ourselves at all, but because of Christ and Christ alone. If you have not understood that before, but you hear it clearly today, You must respond. You must respond to God's call to reject your own sin and run to the holiness of Jesus Christ so that you will be found in Him and have peace with God. The peace of God is not only the removal of your prior hostility to God, but it's the gift of His gracious favor towards you. All of His loving presence with you. All of His blessing upon you. And the clear wisdom and understanding that you are holy and beloved in his sight, always. Brothers and sisters, these twin truths are intended to reset us this morning. That we are holy and that we are to become holy. Are there any of us that are not burdened by our continuing sin? I hate it. I hate it when I experience anger and lust. I hate it when I have days of lukewarm prayers and weeks of relational dullness with people. We need to hear that there is a holiness that has been given to us by God's grace. And that there is a holiness for us to pursue in Christ's peace. This is true of all Christians. In Ephesians 4, chapter 22, Paul writes, so, so put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Look at Paul's, look at Paul's sobering warning in chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, find verse 9. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. We must become the real living people that are, we already are in God's, eye, God's eyes. Holy people. And these twin truths protect us from the twin dangers of legalism and licentiousness. And boy, do we need that help. Legalism is the idea that we can earn our salvation or that we must maintain our salvation through our own works, which are already sinful, and so they won't do the job. Licentiousness is the idea that since, we, well, since we're saved by grace, we don't have to pursue holiness that we've been so graciously given. Both are lies that mock the gospel, and both of them are clear and present dangers that threaten Christians, even us in this room. Can you work to earn your own salvation? Must you work to keep your own salvation? No. We've been given salvation. We do not make ourselves holy by our own works. We have been given holiness by faith in Christ's works, and so we are holy. Can you go on willfully sinning against God who has graciously called you to to holy living without any consequence? No. No. Having been made holy, we now prefer righteousness over sin. We're we're finally free from sin to pursue holiness. By the grace of God and in the peace of Christ, we're free to become what we are, holy. But I need to ask you, are you in danger of either of these two things? Are you so burdened by your sin that you think that God is looking down on you angry angry with you against you because of your guilt and shame you need a reset God sees you as holy so pursue holiness you're sanctified so live sanctified you need this reset God loves you In the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you dragging your feet through a life of spiritual apathy? Are you content to rationalize that your sin's not as bad as it could be? It's not as bad as some others that you know. Is it your habit to come to church once a week and then go home and not really think about the things of God the rest of the week? And then just do it again the next way. Or, are you actually giving yourself to sin and yet denying it? Living a life controlled by the power of sin and then defending yourself to anyone who challenges it. You need a reset. Because you must be Holy. You must pursue God with energy and determination and perseverance. You must make progress in the Christian life. You must own your sin and repent of it and pursue in actual living the holy position that God has already granted you. And you can. Because God's grace is not only saving grace, but it is also sanctifying and sustaining grace. That's where Paul goes next when he gets down into verse 4. Look at verse 4. Paul says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given to you in Jesus Christ. Thanksgiving is the clear tone in verses 4 through 9. And it's a distinctly Christian thanksgiving. I mean, we should just think about this for a moment. You know life is better when you're thankful than when you're not. When you're not thankful, you think it's all about you. It's all about your doing. It's all about the difficulties that you're suffering. When you're thankful, you recognize that everything you have has been given to you. And that is the right orientation. And it is a lighter heart that says thank you. It is a happy heart that says, I'm cared for, I'm provided for, I'm loved. Thanksgiving's important, and Paul gives a distinctively Christian thanksgiving. Paul thanks God. Paul thanks God, not for something that he's done in his own life, but for what he's doing in the lives of others. (laughs) These Corinthians. And Paul always gives thanks That is, that he's thankful on all occasions. Whenever he thinks of the Corinthians, he he thanks God. You know, I'm, I'm thinking on all occasions, writing this letter to confront and correct this church is not a happy occasion. Nobody likes those confrontational meetings that they have to have, and yet Paul gives thanks on this occasion, right in the midst of that. He can't say, Thank you, Corinthians, for being the crown jewel among all the Gentile churches. He can't say that, and he doesn't say that. What does Paul say and give thanks for, to God for? For God's grace. Paul thanks God for his grace to this church. This church is here because of the grace of God. That's why it's God's church in Corinth. This grace that Paul is so thankful for is God's expansive and pervasive grace. God has shown his favor on this church. His complete favor in every aspect Of their Corinthian lives. So, this grace that saves also sanctifies and sustains. That's what Paul is going to unpack in these few verses, four through nine. All of this grace that Paul is thankful for has already been given, and so it is in full operation even now. All of it given to them by Jesus Christ. You know, stop and just think about this for a minute. Before we get to all of the issues that this local church has, and we will, just in verse 10, we'll get there, Paul wants us to see what is true of this church, even this church, that it is a manifestation of the glory of God's grace. This church is a glorious church. Before we get to the the very first issue of this church that has issues, our understanding of the church is already reset, isn't it? Every local church, even the Corinthian church, is a marvelous work of God's grace. And all of this in Christ. Therefore, God has saved us in Christ and God has given us everything we need in order to live holy lives and to worship and to witness as his holy church. That's what he's going to lead into. Look at verse 5 again. That in every way you were enriched in him, in all speech, in all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. By the grace of God, they have been made rich. Did you catch that? They have been made rich in every spiritual way in Christ. The funny thing is that the Corinthians knew that they were spiritually rich, but they wanted to congratulate themselves for their spiritual wealth. Here, Paul wants to highlight a couple of the gifts the gifts of speech and knowledge. Uh, This this connects us to these same two gifts in chapter 12, verse 8, although they sound a little different there. Paul writes in chapter 12, verse 8, to the one is given utterance of wisdom, and to the other the utterance of knowledge according to the same spirit. Paul goes on to say that they're misusing these gifts to boast in themselves. Can you imagine that? It is so like us to be given a gift and and boast in the gift and ourselves than than the giver, right? Right? It's one of our major faults that's that's always around. And that's what they were doing. Well, here Paul wants to highlight these gifts so they know that they they were gifts. You can't boast in yourself. These things were given to you. Because they have this misunderstanding that needs a reset. They've just gotten it wrong. You cannot boast in your spiritual gifts. A spiritual gift is something given to you by the Spirit of God. For what purpose? Well, to bless the people of God. Always. Listen to chapter 12, verses 4 through 7. This is what Paul says about the spiritual gifts. Now, there are a variety of gifts, and the same Spirit. And there are a variety of services, but the same Lord. And there are a variety of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all in every one. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit For the common good. That's it. Spiritual gifts are there for the benefit of the church. Now, there's a problem with how the Corinthians are abusing their spiritual gifts, but there's no problem with the spiritual gifts themselves. They're good gifts from the Spirit. Paul is thanking God for his grace to make them rich in these very spiritual gifts that are going to cause him a real headache when he has to to reset them. In fact, they're they're so rich in Christ that he says in verse 6, they're not lacking in any spiritual gift. Now, I don't think that means that they're not lacking any conceivable gift quantitatively, but that none of the gifts that have been given are lacking qualitatively. Because the gifts have been the product of divine grace. Look between the hash marks in verse 6. Even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, the fact that the Holy Spirit has given gifts, which he only gives to believers, is evidence of divine grace. It is. But that phrase, the testimony about Christ, refers to the gospel. Testimony of Christ equals gospel. The evidence that really confirms that they are rich by the grace of God is their belief in the gospel. There's gift language before it, you've been given gifts, and there's gift language after it, you lack no gift, but standing out right in the middle of it, right in the middle of all this talk about gifts, is the gospel. It is your faith in Christ that confirms that the grace of God is operative in your life. And here's why that matters. Because you are waiting for the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. You are rich in grace resulting in your faith in the gospel such that you have every spiritual gift you need to live a holy life as you wait for Christ's return. That's the reset to our thinking. This is our life. You are rich in grace, resulting in your faith in the gospel, such that you have every spiritual gift needed to live a holy life as you wait for the return of Christ for you. That's the reset. I'm going to use this word eschatological, so I'm going to define it for you. Um, I have to get very wordy when I could just use one word, eschatological. So we're going to learn that word this morning. The eschaton, it's a Greek word, it's just transliterated into English, is the Greek word for the last day, the final event. It's it's the coming day of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the eschaton. It's a noun, eschaton. And to make it an adjective, we say eschatological. Our hope in the eschaton is an eschatological hope in Jesus. So God's grace for which we are thankful is with us all the way to the eschaton, all the way to the last day, all the way to the return of Christ for us, okay? We are secure. God's grace secures us in this eschatological hope. And our hope is aimed at the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. He will sustain us. He will preserve us, Paul says. When I fear, my faithful fail. Christ will hold me fast, right? God will see to it that we make it all the way to the last day by his grace to us in Christ. He who began a good work in you will bring it to its completion on the day of the Lord Jesus Christ, Philippians 1.6. And what is that good work? that God has begun in you, that he's going to bring to completion. Holiness. You are sanctified. You have been called to be saints. By God's grace, our hope will result in our being guiltless, Paul says, on the day in Christ. You see, on that day, no charge can be brought against God's holy saints. No sin will remain in God's holy church. Nothing can undo the grace of God freely given to those who love their son, love his son. Did you notice, did you notice that Jesus Christ is named in eight of the nine verses that we read this morning? Jesus, 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 Jesus. And in the fifth verse, he's not named, but he's referred to By a pronoun. He's there anyway. In every way you were enriched in Him, Jesus Christ. Nine out of nine verses. How can we be sure of our eschatological hope? Because God is faithful. Look at verse 9. God is faithful. By whom you were called. Into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. We can be sure of our eschatological hope. We can be sure that we will be found guiltless on the day that Christ comes back for us because God is faithful. Our hope is guaranteed in God's faithfulness. You know, anecdotally, years ago I read this passage and I saw the church so wrapped up In the grace of God. And I thought, Grace Baptist Church would be a great name for a church plant in the greater Portland, Maine area, wouldn't it? It's all of God's grace. And I looked a little closer at verse 9 and saw that our faithful God has called us to be His church that is the fellowship of Christ. So Christ Fellowship Church, let's reset our minds and our hearts and our attitudes concerning the wisdom and knowledge of God. You are holy by the grace of God. You are becoming holy in the peace that we have in Christ. So be what you are by faith in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love that this is your church. We're thankful, thankful, thankful for your grace in our lives. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who suffered on the cross, was buried and rose from the grave to bring peace between us and you and between us and one another. Lord, we thank you for that wisdom. We thank you for that knowledge. We thank you for the grace and the gifts that you give to us in the spirit that we might live sanctified lives now, ever increasing in our obedience and our love and our devotion to Christ. And we pray that you would build us up, that you would build us up as your church with this very true and certain eschatological hope that Christ is coming for us, that he will find us guiltless because we are in him who is guiltless, and that we will be with him forever. This is our prayer in Christ's name. Amen.